difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm tasha robinson and i'm here with keith phillips and genevieve kosky scott tobias recently met a rich attractive woman who wants to pay him a huge salary to train young film critics to write reviews in some far-flung exotic country so he's away this week and possibly forever depending on how that works out for him i mean i don't see how it could possibly go wrong in the meantime, to fill his empty seat, we have brought in a guest, Chicago critic Deirdre Crimmins. Welcome aboard, Deirdre. Oh, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I like talking about movies. Nice to have you here, and uh, maybe nice to to be watching a couple of like relatively warm, sunny films in the middle of <laughs> yet another dreary February in Chicago. It's actively snowing right now, so we'll take it. Yeah, it's, it's probably a good time to be indoors uh, talking about films. Um, yeah, we, we want to visit warmer, more temperate places like London. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, highly exotic uh, places like London, you know, where they, yeah. they speak another language and uh, have another culture and whatnot. Oh, well, it is what it is. Um, so last week, we kind of broke formula. We discussed uh, a currently airing TV show slash video game adaptation, The Last of Us, alongside Children of Men. This week, we're steering straight back into cinema. And as I kind of alluded to, uh, this is a couple of really cinematic movies, uh, both of which kind of tap into some old school movie traditions. Genevieve, how about setting the stage for us here? Sure. In the next two episodes, we're looking at a couple of features that take very different approaches to similar stories about dance. Magic Mike's Last Dance, the third movie in Channing Tatum's Male Stripper with a Heart of Gold series, marks Steven Soderbergh's return to the franchise after leaving the steamiest entry, 2015's Magic Mike XXL, in other hands. This time around, Tampa Carpenter slash bartender slash stripper slash choreographer Mike Lane meets a rich socialite, Maxandra Mendoza, played by Salma Hayek, who's so taken with his charms that she invites him to come to London at her expense and help her plan a show at a theater she owns, with the promise of a huge payday that might get his beloved carpentry shop back on its feet. All of which reminded us of Vincente Minnelli's 1951 classic, An American in Paris, also about a struggling artist, this time played by Gene Kelly, who meets a rich socialite who wants to bankroll his work. As a side connection, Kelly obviously is also a dancer, though a very different kind of dancer than Magic Mike. Yeah, there are a lot of differences here, starting off with the huge gap between the politics of a man being supported by a woman in 1951 versus a man working for a woman in 2023. And maybe finishing off with how rarely Gene Kelly strips down to his underwear in American Paris to do a slow erotica lap dance with his co-star. We'll get into the difference between shaking your moneymaker for a bored, lonely, wealthy lady 70 plus years ago and shaking it today after this break. This is Paris. And I'm an American who lives here. I'm a painter. All my life, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Brother, if you can't paint in Paris, you better give up and marry the boss's daughter. Oh, I have a lot of good friends in Paris. A lot of very good friends. And I am one of them. I'm a concert pianist. That's a pretentious way of saying I'm uh, unemployed at the moment. I like Paris. It's a place where you don't run into old friends, although that has never been one of my problems. Strangely enough, I made a friend over here once. I worked for him. 
His name was Henri Borel. You know, the French music hall star. Do you remember him? I remember, because that is me. Begin today. Broadly speaking, you can divide movie musicals into two categories. The ones written as a piece, with a story in mind, and song and dance sequences meant to serve that story, and what are called trunk musicals, or jukebox musicals, with stories written primarily to showcase existing music. It's often pretty easy to tell them apart. Even if you don't know every song by the Beatles or ABBA, it's pretty clear that the songs in Mamma Mia or Yellow Submarine are more like fantasy intervals in a frame story than, say, the songs in Fiddler on the Roof or Umbrellas of Cherbourg, or Encanto, which actually tell the story and move characters forward in important ways. And just as broadly speaking, trunk musicals are more likely to struggle to make the songs relevant to the characters in the story, since the songs weren't written originally with the idea that they'd be coming from a consistent set of voices or personalities. If the songs are good, the personalities are strong, and someone worked to make the musical interludes relevant to the story, you get something like Singing in the Rain, where those interludes might feel like hiccups in the narrative, but not like road bumps to its progress. Otherwise, you might end up with An American in Paris, a movie that's charming, well-meant, and engaging, but full of musical road bumps that stop the story cold. After Rhapsody in Blue composer George Gershwin died in 1937, MGM executive Arthur Freed bought up the rights to his musical catalog, with the idea of building a musical specifically around Gershwin's orchestral composition, An American in Paris. Freed insisted that the number couldn't stand alone. It had to be surrounded by other Gershwin songs. So he commissioned playwright Alan J. Lerner, the writer of Brigadoon and later My Fair Lady, to write a quick script around a number of Gershwin tunes, including I Got Rhythm, Stairway to Paradise, and Swonderful. Freed was specifically looking for a spectacle with an American in Paris. Like so many movie studios, MGM in the late 1940s and early 1950s was out to lure in a war-weary audience by selling them on fantasy, color, spectacle, and escapism. The tactic certainly worked in this case. The movie opened to rave reviews that largely praised that spectacle while noting the thinness of the story. It was a box office success that won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year, along with five other Oscars. It's the kind of movie that sent audiences away on a high note after a 17-minute virtuoso dance fantasy sequence that ends with the charming lead, Jerry Mulligan, getting everything he wants. Immediately after that fantasy sequence, Jerry's dreams come true in his real life as well. And then the movie abruptly cuts to a The End card without ever bothering to wrap up the rest of its loose ends. And that's a pretty oddball way to close when you consider the rest of the movie. Gene Kelly stars as Jerry, the American in Paris of the title. He's a former GI who stayed in France after his service in the war to study painting in the Europe of the Old Masters. Lerner's script hands Jerry a couple of local buddies. Adam, a would-be concert pianist played by Oscar Levant, and French dancehall singer Henri, played by George Guterri. These two are mostly in the movie to enable different kind of Gershwin tunes, including another lengthy fantasy sequence where Adam fantasizes about playing Gershwin's concerto in F for piano and orchestra, serving as the pianist, the conductor, all of the other musicians, and the appreciative audience. But Lerner doesn't care much about these two friends and how their stories end up. The bigger focus is on Jerry's love life, as he meets lonely rich heiress Milo, played by Nina Falk, while he's peddling his paintings on the street. Milo likes Jerry's work and wants to set him up with a nice studio and an exhibition of his own, but she also wants to romance him, which he resists, especially after he spots perky young Lisa Bouvier, played by Leslie Curran, in a cafe and starts mercilessly bullying her and manipulating her for a date. 
The way Jerry can't hear Lisa's repeated refusals and requests to be left alone is just one way an American Paris rankles a bit for modern audiences. The fact that he gets his way by lying to her friends to get her away from them, then showing up at her workplace to hector her and steamroll her over her protests is another. And then, of course, she falls in love with Jerry, even though she's already dating his friend Henri, who she feels indebted to for saving her life during the war. She feels she can't tell either of them the truth. In the same way, Jerry doesn't exactly tell Milo he isn't interested in her romantically, but it feels like it wouldn't matter if he did, because she steamrollers all over his protests with the same blithe refusal to hear anything that doesn't fit her fantasies. This is not a movie where people often listen to each other, or take each other seriously, no matter what serious protests are raised. It also isn't a movie where the screenwriter cares that much about the characters, apart from the question of whether Jerry and Lisa get a made-for-the-screen happily ever after. After the big fantasy ballet, Lerner drops Milo and Adam cold. We never find out whether they get any of what they want, although a modern writer probably would have put the two together, since they seem exactly suited to each other's needs. We never get to hear Henri's side of the story, or find out how Jerry's fraught, much-discussed exhibition goes. And that's because American in Paris is resisting any hint of melancholy or compromise at the end. It's meant to be a feel-good story, so it has to cut the second someone might not be fully satisfied with the ending. And yet there's so much melancholy baked into both the premise and the making of the film. Lisa losing her family and becoming dependent on a man she believes she owes her body and soul to, that's pretty tragic. Henri, believing she loves him when she just feels guilty about him, is another tragedy. Jerry and Adam are artists who don't believe in their art or their skills and are afraid to put them out in the world. And then there's Milo, trying over and over to buy love from artists who disappear once they get what they want or just get tired of her. This is actually a pretty sad movie in its way or at least a movie with a mournful melancholy streak like so much of the Gershwin music that animates it. But who'd notice, with Gene Kelly tap-dancing and smiling, and Leslie Curran grinning her way through that introductory scene where Jerry listens to Henri's description of her and imagines her as essentially five different women. But that's wartime cinema for you. There's so many dark, sad assumptions in the background of this story, and so much effort put into keeping everyone smiling. That's also jukebox musicals for you. The story, in essence, barely matters. What matters is comfortingly familiar music and comfortingly familiar faces, and the attempt to combine them into something startling and new that we've never seen on the screen. In that sense, at least, an American in Paris is still a winner, and still capable of giving viewers the same energy they were getting out of it more than 70 years ago. I can understand disregarding perspective to achieve an effect, but in your case, Look, I honey, believe that... why don't you be a good little girl and move on? You're not going to buy anything, and you're just blocking out the sunshine. Well, I just wanted to discuss your work. I don't want you to discuss my work. I'm not interested in your opinion of my work. If you say something nice, it won't make me feel any better, and if you don't, it'll bother me. Thank you. Good day. <laughs> Do you uh, mind if I look, or will you chew my head off, too? No, go ahead. You're okay. Oh, thank you. She's one of those third-year girls that gripe my liver. Third-year girl? Yeah, you know, American college kids. They come over here to take their third year and lap up a little culture. They give me a swift pain. Why, they're harmless enough. They're officious and dull. They're always making profound observations they've overheard. Okay, everybody, let's jump into An American in Paris. I'm curious what you make of this movie in 2023. As, as always, we don't like the, the word dated exactly, but there's certainly some aspects of the kind of the relationship politics and the, the manners of romance here that don't land. But honestly, I, I feel like maybe the biggest thing here is 
this is a musical expressly built around music that would have been just like household familiar tunes in some cases to people in 1951 and that uh, some of them feel a lot more obscure today. How, how does this movie overall play for you right now? Deirdre, let's start with you. The thing on a rewatch that really struck me, and I've seen this film so many times, is how often Gene Kelly's friends make fun of him for being supported by a woman and make like blatant references to him possibly putting out in order to like earn his keep. That is something that like, I was like, oh, okay, that's just an assumption because there's no way why else would a woman be supporting the arts here? Yeah, I think that it lands a little different in that 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 is really being called attention to in the gender politics there, not that they're not in Magic Mike. Also, I, I don't know if this is the time to bring it up, but Gene Kelly's art actually isn't that good. So. <laughs> I, was, I, I think we we're going to get that at some point. This is kind of like an example of why you don't actually show the art or why you don't actually, you know, read the poetry of, of fictional characters who write, uh, you know, who, who create wonderful art or whatever. Uh, it's mm-hmm. fine, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, like, I, I, I wish we had, an, like, another signal in the film to indicate, like, what anyone other than Milo thought of of his art, uh, you know, just to kind of like orient ourselves in terms of how good it is supposed to be versus what we're actually seeing. Mm-hmm. Well, we get yeah. something from his friend Adam at the towards the very end of the film, where, where Adam basically says like, he's not ready, and they're gonna tear him apart. I, it but also be- Adam's just such a like cynical jerk. <laughs> That's true. And, and we have the we have the understanding that Adam does not himself like put his music out there. Like he's a concert pianist who, if I recall correctly, has never played a concert. Seems like an odd detail. So yeah, it, it is even his opinion is, is compromised, but yes, it would be nice except that the movie is so uninterested in that question. Like we never do actually find out what comes of that art exhibition. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess at the top of this episode, I, I wanted to say that any thought that we give to the themes and plot of this movie, or with all due respect to Alan J. Lerner, a, a giant of, of the stage and, and, and film, uh, probably more thought that he gave to them in some ways, you know? <laughs> I mean, it is, it is you know, I, I really do like this film quite a bit, but I kind of like... You know, this rewatch and like it's kind of felt like maybe a second tier of the great musicals in many ways because the the parts are so wonderful and and they're strung together on you know a not great plot and then I think I'm sure we'll get into is like every element is like ooh I don't know if I like that very much <laughs> at all. I mean, I mean, even even aside from the uh, relationship gender politics, like one of the things, one of the ones that really threw me was when Ad was like, uh, like when he's trying to distract Henri and Jerry from like talking, and he's like, "Let me tell you about the time I played a command performance for Hitler." He was like, <laughs> "Right." <laughs> <laughs> like w- whether that's true or a lie it's a really weird thing to just toss out there especially like right on the heels of world war ii as as, as this is but see i don't think it is an odd thing i i think that it's just one of a, a bunch of assumptions being made in this film about we all have this shared history we all have this big traumatic shared event that we just came through all of this entire movie is made in the shadow of you know, uh, Lisa's backstory is just so painful. And it's just kind of assumed that like, you know, probably everybody has gone through something ugly. You know, these, mm-hmm. these men are all fresh off of a war. Uh, Henri is, is fresh off of, you know, watching his country being taken over by the Nazis. And the fact that he had a close encounter with Hitler both doesn't seem surprising and does seem interesting to me. 
Like I, if I had that story, I would pull it out at every opportunity too, <laughs> especially if I was trying to distract people. And the fact that they don't say either, yes, you've told us a thousand times or uh, wait, what? I guess I'll, since we're talking about dangling threads a little bit, I'll uh, kind of jump back to the question of like what it was like to watch this movie today. And like, I, I can't believe we haven't really even mentioned it yet, but I, like the one thing I f- feel people know about this movie is the big dream ballet sequence at, at the end. Like, I feel like it's sort of its defining feature. At least that's that's what I always think of first with this film. And what I always forget is that that's not the end. And there is this like happily ever after rushing back into each other's arm, happy ending that frankly, I hate. <laughs> like, I, 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 and I, and, and because it does leave like the, like, okay, what about his art show? What about Milo? You know, uh, I guess Henri's just cool with it. But like, I, I feel like if it just like ended on the fantasy, if it like had the, I don't want to say had the courage. I don't want to tell movies what to do. And I know that a movie of this era would be highly unlikely to do this. But if it did just end on that dream ballet, it would have just this like melancholy ending that I feel would be so much more resonant than what we have, which just feels kind of like a rubber stamp happy ending that doesn't really take into account the rest of the movie outside of this romance. Yeah, I mean, if I were to defend this film as as a narrative is it, it really does seem to be going for trying to be a musical about difficult grown-up relationships in some ways like how how you know romance is is sticky and, and it's and it's overlaps sometimes and you know you feel one way about one person one way about another and and you know it, you know if it had kept going and maybe resolved some of those threads it might make it might be easier to defend as that or i think as you say if it were just kind of cut off on those sort of this bittersweet note of of that uh ballet it would be, you know, be a stronger film in some ways. Yeah, I think a lot of the film asks, like, rewatching it as many times as I've had, the, like, overwhelming question that keeps coming through for me is, like, what do you owe people? Like, what does Lise owe Henri, having saved her from the war, essentially? Do you owe her him a marriage? Like, and does Jerry owe Milo anything beyond just a painting exhibition? Like, there's this whole thing where there's the questions that are put forth are much more complicated than they really seem at first. Because on paper, it's like, no, you don't owe this person that. But it's like, but don't you? Like, there's a social contract there that they're all playing into, which is why it's always so weird when Henri like redelivers Lise back. And it's like, <laughs> you're literally dropping her off at this, like, yeah broke guy like did he believe that she did owe him anything or was it just because she felt like she couldn't say like thanks that was fun like that she (laughs) like is going on like it's just so strange to me like the weight of what is like a currency in their their world and it just seems to kind of fall by the wayside at the end it's like yeah don't worry about it it doesn't matter i mean i have to assume just because of the way it's framed like we see Henri overhearing the conversation between the two of them and, and understanding at least that she's in love with somebody else. And he doesn't choose to just faff off at that moment. He takes her away in his car and there's a long pause and then he brings her back. And I I have to assume that they had a thoughtful conversation in the car where he gets the Casablanca ending, where he's like, "You, you actually love him and I'm capable of giving you up because I'm an adult. Uh, And the fact that the movie doesn't think we need to see any of that, that it's Henri's feelings and his nobility and his his still caring about Lisa as somebody he wants to protect and like wants her to have a happy life. All of that is just so much more resonant and much more of a happy ending to me than and you ended up with this jerk. 
jerk who, you know, doesn't, is not interested in any no that you have to say about anything. I mean, in terms of the the complicated issues of what do we owe each other, mostly what I was thinking throughout this film is all these people owe each other the truth. Like, grow up, tell people what you're thinking, especially people you're you're planning to get married to. And the fact that Lerner just didn't feel we needed to see the part where everybody talked about like their actual grown up feelings and what they wanted. And it, it was just much more important to spend 17 minutes dancing around a, a fake fountain full of smoke. I just find really disappointing. Although that fountain is a really great special effect. Yeah. I was, and this was my first time seeing uh, an American in Paris. Wow. And throughout that entire sequence, I was just so distracted every time the fountain showed up, just like looking <laughs> at how it was constructed. It's, it's a really neat effect. It's this big plexiglass thing. Yeah. I will say even with all those so-called social contracts around, like I have zero concerns about Milo after the fact, like she's going to be aces. Yeah. Like she's got everything <laughs> going on for her. A couple months down the road, she'll find another artist to, to, to support. <laughs> she seems locked into a, a really unhappy pattern though. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, we were told that she's, she's done this before and she'll probably undoubtedly do it again, but I don't know. Uh, I thought Milo, I think Milo got done, done dirty, frankly. Yeah. I mean, he's not even nice to her, you know, and the film's attitude to her, toward her is a little, uh, oh. rough, I think. You know, what, what oh, does yeah. she do that's so wrong besides having money and <laughs> trying to support people and maybe having a crush in the process? Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too kind to her, but. Well, no, there, there's that one line she gets that's, that's like, I finally feel like a woman. Like it, it like really like, like the film like really puts her in this position of because she has the power in this relationship she is not really a woman and does not have like her her desires are not womanly and especially when placed next to Lisa who this like 19 year old just naive beauty you know like it feels unfair like you said like the characterization of Milo as not quite villain but I think she's probably the closest thing this movie has to a villain or what it thinks is is a villain you know what blew me away do you know how old Nita Fosh was when this film came out oh I'm just gonna say 27 27. <laughs> You're exactly really? right. It's so crazy. Um, you know, less because I was interested in how old she was and more because I was interested in her relative age compared to Gene Kelly, because mm-hmm. I really felt like this movie was coding her as the older woman who is undesirable. Mm-hmm. And it, she's, she's 12 years younger than Gene Kelly. I don't know if she's supposed to be undesirable, but she's definitely supposed to be kind of the older person who ought to have settled down by this point, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, with no, I mean, there's no insult to her appearance at, at all because she's, she's lovely, but she does look older. I mean, she does, does look like mm-hmm. a mature woman in, in, a, in a way that a 27 year old on screen usually doesn't, unless she's Lauren Bacall. <laughs> but the thing though, I mean, to me at least, she's got this Lauren Bacall glamour that, that Leslie Karen just doesn't have. Like, I, I find her. To the degree that I'm back on women in movies, I just find her so much more attractive than than Leslie Karen in this film. Yeah, and there is this undercurrent there of like, this is how she can get men. And this is the only, I don't know if it's the only way that she can get men, but it's like her being able to sponsor men as a way to kind of like seduce them on a certain level because of like her crush on Jerry and things like that. Whereas like, she's gorgeous and she's young and she's got money. Like, what more do you want were she to actually just go out and find a partner on her own? Yeah, I, I feel like Milo, while I'm I'm 95% with Keith in terms of uh, Milo, Milo gets a raw deal out of this whole thing. I do think that to the degree that she has any any villainy here, to the degree she can be blamed for anything, 
kind of submerging her her desire, her just outright desire for Jerry. Because I, I really do think that she looks at him and thinks, oh, he's cute. I'd like to talk to him. And what she says instead was, oh, I love your art. I have to buy some of it. And then I think she thinks he's really cute and should like to date him. And what she says instead is, I'd like to buy you a studio. I'd like to buy you an exhibition. I'd like to buy you a future. And if she was just falling back on the fact that she's beautiful and charming and sophisticated and and rich and well-spoken and interesting and and obviously actually a fan of the arts who like likes going out to jazz cafes all of that really seems like it should be enough to land her a date without all of these pretenses which do actually get in the way of any kind of relationship she could have like as long as she's chasing this man who just is really obvious about the fact that he doesn't want her, but is willing to hang out with her for what she can buy him. She's going to be stuck with gold digging men. And it just sounds like that's been the pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they stay with her because she's paying for everything. And then they leave either when they get successful or they get tired of her, you know, as if it would be easy to get tired of somebody who just seems so charming and thoughtful and interesting and intelligent. I think the idea though is it's emasculating to them. Yeah. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. kind of when, you know, when she says it makes me feel like a woman we're supposed to see, like, you know, you kiss me and now I'm kind of in my proper position here. Um, yeah. Well, and yeah. the fact that like he will only agree to go out with her in the first place if it's a cheap place that he can afford to pay, like, you mm-hmm. know, like right from the jump, like his like willingness to socialize with her is wrapped up in a condition that like people don't know uh, he is being supported by her right from the jump she is setting up their relationship to be based on a transaction there like it's not like she's just like oh do you want to grab a coffee and like talk about this she's like i'm gonna pay you the instant they meet so like right outside the precedent is just all it's about money and like that's maybe a quote unquote bad move on, on on her part as far as establishing this precedent. But it I also it also feels like very informed by the, you know, social mores of, of the time. You know, like mm-hmm. I I wasn't there, but I feel like, you know, uh, it was probably not very common for a woman to just casually ask a man out for coffee. I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe Paris who knows with Paris, but you know, if in this version of Paris, uh that doesn't seem like it would be acceptable. I feel like we could talk about their relationship and the dynamics and how frustrating they are, you know, for an hour. But I don't want to. I don't want to get bogged <laughs> down. When there, is, there is a lot of this movie to talk about, and one of the biggest things, I guess, as I was watching it, is just as I say, it's it's a jukebox musical, and it just really feels it to me. There's just a lot of it's time for another musical number. Let's pull one out of the Gershwin and an Ira Gershwin song box. How can we possibly fit this in? I don't know. Gene Kelly's just going to sing and dance. You love Gene Kelly singing and dancing. What more could you want? And Bust out a tap dance, Gene. (laughs) (laughs) Their flat surface, tap dance on it. First time he just starts tap dancing out of nowhere. I'm like, wait, has he been walking around in his tap shoes this entire time? You aren't? It's a musical. It's, it's I mean, fantasy. If, if, any, if anyone can justify wearing tap shoes around all the time, I would say it's Gene Kelly. That's true. There are flat surfaces everywhere, and he has danced on most of them, up to and including the walls. Apart from the the giant 17-minute-long IG's ballet at the end, are, do any of these musical numbers stand out for you? Like, it, it, you're all re-watching this movie, which I'm not. Was, was there anything that you were actively looking forward to? 
I like all of them. I, I love the I like I like the kids. Uh, you know, the kids in the streets is one I really remember distinctly. Uh, I like. Did you shaking your head? No, <laughs> no, no. I like the kids. All right, I, I like. You know, Sorry, little, Keith. I also, also little don't like the kids. Thing. I don't know. I like the piano <laughs> scene. I, I what I like about I think what part of what makes the movie interesting is is that. All the other musical sequences are, are small, which doesn't mean they're not intricate or, or impressive, uh, but they're the you know humble surroundings, a street or an apartment or, or whatever. And then you, then it just opens up into that fantasy Paris and in, in, in the ballet at the beginning. I, I think that's a really uh, neat contrast. But one thing I just like about Kelly so much in, in general and in this movie, you can really see it is in, especially in those early scenes. It's kind of like it's so effortless. It's kind of like. Well, I go, you know, you know, I'm just going to casually segue into this amazing tap dance number. And here I am, you know, whirling around like, like an airplane propeller, uh, like you've never seen before. And then with a smile on my face and then I'm done. And then it's back to what I was doing before. Uh, and I think, you know, just the idea of, of these fairly humble, although obviously, you know, backlot created versions of, of French locations, uh, uh, you know, turning into these wonderful scenes for, for amazing dance numbers, the best of them featuring children because you know everyone loves that scene <laughs> everyone except okay. everyone else in this podcast apparently but still i will never think that children singing is the right way to go like never yeah, well. <laughs> even um, if it's only one syllable <laughs> i'm fine no it's just it's not adding anything to my life no i think children singing is creepy and i will always stand by that especially as a horror fan um i will say though the um it's very clear our love is here to say number down by the river i kind of have a hot soft spot for but only for the fact that billy crystal references it heavily in the movie forget paris which is quite forgettable (laughs) but i adore that film Hmm. so yeah i'm just like oh it's coming up but it's more like a film from the 90s that's referencing all the way back that doesn't mean it's good it means i like it I mean, I'll bring up a couple of non-Gene Kelly numbers, which I think, Keith, you, you briefly mentioned the uh, Adams, like, dream symphony, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, zero reason for that for that <laughs> sequence to be in this film. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a fun little filigree, and I guess a fun moment for that character to ham it up a little um, without having to sing, because mm-hmm. he's not really a, a great singer. In, in, in the other uh, numbers. The fact that we know so little about him in some ways, he's just kind of this like irascible yet sort of amiable presence. Yeah. You know, Jerry shows up and he's like, get out. I don't want to see you. I'm working. Yeah. But he's still capable of just like going and playing at a cafe and, and getting drawn into performing with his friends. Like he's a crank, but he's not a bad crank. But the idea that he's just like sitting alone, conjuring up these fantasies where He's not only a world famous pianist, but also apparently a world famous kettle drummer and uh, conductor. And his own biggest fans. The fact that he puts himself in the audience applauding for himself is just. I don't know. It, that's, that's some Ouroboros uh, stuff there. I'm not it's sure on brand for him. Yeah. <laughs> it is on brand for him to be his own biggest fan. Yeah. And like, if anything, like with his character specifically, like, if we're going off of the opening narration, you would think that he would be one of the other main characters of the film. Mm-hmm. He's not. Yeah. I mean, he is a, he's the main character of his own life, but he's not one of the main characters of the film. 
in such a way? First time, I, my husband and I were both absolutely convinced that the end of the movie would bring him and Milo together. Like he is yeah. a, a penniless uh, pianist in, in in need of a constant patron, and uh, she is a woman who apparently needs to buy relationships and feel like she's supporting the arts. Why wouldn't they end up together? Oh, well, because Lerner doesn't care at all about either of them. I mean, they have that. They do get that scene uh, at the party at, at the end together, where he spills the beans. So maybe we can just like assume the groundwork is being laid there for her to become <laughs> his patron uh, af- after this. Great scene, by the way. It's mm-hmm. it's tight. It's well written, but it's also just surprising several times over mm-hmm. because she comes out and tells him the truth like immediately there's no threes company like wacky hijinks with them running around and like he doesn't realize she knows and she didn't tell him on purpose but now she knows he knows blah 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 she just comes out like a grown-up and says you've made you you've misunderstood something here and i i don't want you to be embarrassed you should know this and he's like no i am actually aware of this and i did it on purpose that's it speaks so well to both of them. I want these two to end up together. I'm, I'm rooting for these crazy kids. <laughs> but Genevieve, it sounded like you had uh, another song that you also oh, followed. Yeah, with. well, I, I, I wanted to call out uh, the Stairway to Paradise, uh, Henri's like, club number, just because I think it's beautifully sung in a way that I, most of the other numbers are, you know, that I feel like the focus a little, is a little more on the dancing, the overall tableau, the children. Uh, but, you know, it, there's... I mean, obviously, it's a it's a showy number, what with the glowing uh, staircase and the the showgirls and, and whatnot. But like, there's not really like the dancing isn't very flashy. It's more just about like him singing, and I think he sings beautifully. And it was just kind of nice to have like, oh, a really well performed song instead of a number. You know, <laughs> I really like. Him as a screen presence, George. George I'm, I'm going to butcher the name, but George Guitare. Guitare. I, I I know him basically from this movie. I'm looking at his filmography. It's this is like his only film, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. The, a little bit of trivia here. And if if you think if you think this film is squirmy as it is, uh, they wanted Maurice Chevalier for that role. <laughs> he would have been 61 when this film came out. Um, <laughs> but that would have been like more in line with the character who yes. is supposed to be like older and is the, the he's actually like the actor is actually like a couple years younger than gene kelly right as if i recall yeah um, yeah and I, you know yeah. i've never had a, a ward and i've been happily married for years but if i did have a ward <laughs> i don't really see myself falling in, i don't know well anyway um, yeah again a very different time where that that kind of thing was more done and you know people also married their cousins like people growing up in proximity to people who are part of the bloodline you know not as as weird and taboo as it feels today but yes is somebody that you cared for and essentially raised when her parents died becoming a romantic interest it just feels sticky to me and also, like, I know it's the times, whatever, but like some, like a person who is not fully cooked yet, like 19 is not mm. old enough, you know, like, like, a for- job? <laughs> <laughs> I think she was 17 when this was shot. I was the, the, a- the actress was 17, but I think they say uh, the character the is, is, yeah. is yes, 19. Yeah, of course. That's, that's just one of the reasons she looks so un- unbaked. Like the character is 19, the actress is 17, and the actress got pulled into this uh, story because Gene Kelly saw her in Paris 
in doing ballet when she was 15 and mm-hmm. somehow said, Don't like it. Let's, nope. let's get, let's get her <laughs> over here for like a big romantic movie with me somehow. Well, the- I, know, I, I know it's controversial to say, but I do not condone that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the film itself almost seems to acknowledge how like icky it might be because even Henri has like lines inserted where he's, Oh no, 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 we only fell in love like once she was old enough. And it's like, yeah. Oh, so you acknowledge that this might be weird. I'm not sure what to make of Lisa in general. I I really my maybe my favorite sequence in the entire film was her introduction where Henri is talking oh, about man. her and it's just a series of contradictions and you know not major ones like she's she's cheerful and gay and yet also she reads if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, the, the fantasy portrayals of presumably this is how uh, Jerry is trying to imagine her. But all of it is is ballet, you know, of, of course, an arty. Well, there's uh, some jazz in there, too. <laughs> fair. But yeah. I mean, even the jazz is just very ballet oriented. Like, I, I kind of mm-hmm. love the fact that, like, oh, of course, somebody who reads all the time uh, would be like a dour librarian type in all black who would also just do the splits constantly against walls while she reads. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm like, I, this whole sequence for me, I'm like, women can't win. Like, if you're like, if you read, it means you're not fun. Like, if you're this, it means you're that. Like, you just can't be like, oh, she reads. Sounds good. She's well read. Like, it can't just be that. It means like some negative consequence. Oh, she's cheerful. That must mean she's shallow and stupid. Exactly. Yeah. You can't win. Is there a commentary there? I'm always kind of like, you know, maybe the film is, is trying to point this out a little bit. I don't, I don't know. Perhaps, no, I think it's just not. an excuse for like a showy sequence. I actually don't love that. I, I, I actually find the first uh, like few scenes of this movie to be like a little try hard. I guess <laughs> the the trading opening narration and then kind of immediate and then with this uh, Lisa introduction and like immediately on its heels, just it. it I'm not going to go quite so far as to call it a gimmick, but you know, it's like it's it's throwing a lot of stuff out there, you know. And the I I don't dislike the Lisa introduction in concept, but I feel like it just goes on like three beats too long, <laughs> you know. Um, kind of the same with the narration. It's it's like it uh, just does it three times over again, you know. It's just kind of it's like piling up flourishes right at the beginning and the film does settle down until the again the 17 minute dream ballet at the end which is the opposite (laughs) of settling down so i guess it it, it's it comes in real hot and it goes out real hot but it it calms down in the middle that that said the opening does firmly establish why leslie caron was was cast in in this film i mean she's an amazing dancer and like i've never you know i know i've seen people dance on point uh, and certainly, you know, I know what it is. But when you actually watch her feet in those moments, like, how is this humanly possible to do these things? But at the same time, I, I don't get caught up in the technique of it, though. Because I do, I do, it's not just showy for showy's sake. It's, but it's an amazing image just to, to see mm-hmm. someone prance around like that. Yeah, similarly, I think it's an amazing image to see somebody in a, a room where literally everything is green. You know, the walls are green, but also the doors are green. The fireplace is green. The uh, the vases and the flowers are green. The paintings on the wall are green. Like all of those scenes are set up, you know, color coded in ways that are like, very showy, very try hard. <laughs> Maybe that whole sequence is too long because having put the effort into the set dressing, they yeah. wanted to get their money's worth. Oh, yeah. I agree that it goes on too long, but I don't know. For me it's playful in a way not enough of the rest of the movie is. And 
it really kind of speaks to Jerry's faults more than anything else. Like it's, it's not really talking about how she's, you know, too many things or not enough things or even really portraying her personality. It's just kind of portraying his prejudices. You know, he's the one asking all of the dumb questions about, Oh, she's (laughs) so she's bad then. And he's the one like presumably visualizing all of this stuff. But I don't know. I, I agree that it could be trimmed. I think maybe each segment could be trimmed rather than cutting one of the iterations. But I just, I think it's, it's visually fun. Yeah, I don't disagree. <laughs> what do we make of the whole business with her? I, it, I, I feel like this movie just sets her up as such a sharp contrast with Milo because, you know, Milo, as we say, our villain is being forthright about not exactly forthright about what she wants, but at least forthright about wanting to see Jerry and be part of his life and and work with him. Whereas Lisa is forthright about the fact that she doesn't, she does not want to be part of his life. She does not want to be involved with him. He meets her by engineering a, a dance with her by lying to her friends and physically hauling her away from them in such a way that's like weaponizing her politeness because she's afraid to make a scene. And then she keeps telling him, no, stop, don't. And he's like, well, whatever. Women are so cute. I just, it's not, it's not cute. It's not funny. It's kind of vile. Mm -hmm. And then he stalks her. He stalks her. He like gets her number and then goes to her place of work. And like within two seconds, she's like, oh, never mind. I do like you. I don't, I don't like it now. I don't know if I would have felt <laughs> no. differently about it in uh, being an audience at the time, but I definitely uh, don't like it now. I guess the mitigating factor is it is Gene Kelly, who is very charming. Uh, just, a, just, just a charming fellow on screen. This character, perhaps not, you know, I think it pushes his, his charm to its limits, though. Yes. Uh, he, he really, I, it is, as you say, pretty aggressive behavior. That said, there's that smile, right? The smile goes a long way. Eh. I mean, speaking, yes. Yeah, I don't think it something. should, but it does. I think, <laughs> at least speaking in the, the context of the film, hit on by strangers, uh, a a charming smile is just no uh, substitute for somebody who proves they can listen to you when you say no. That's it's mm. a really important part of dating people. Yeah, but I'll say this: I would have, I would buy the whole. Okay, she's just sold on his charms thing. If we'd gotten a musical number in there which mm-hmm. both would have taken it all out of the realm of any kind of reality and into it, it's a musical fantasy and would have really highlighted what he does best because he's, he's not playing the charm nearly enough in those scenes. He's just, you know, pushing her and saying, hey, your, your no doesn't matter to me. You're going to do what I say. But you know, if he, if he'd done a little uh, tap dance, if he'd sung her a little love song, if he had taken the whole thing back into, eh, we're in a musical and everything, everything goes uh, kind of way. I, I think I probably would have bought the charm argument a little more here. I mean, I think we have a, like a version of that with the love is here to stay dance uh, along the river. Like, I think that is sort of the musical trope of our couple's love being cemented through their first dance. But you're right that there is like a beat missing where he like actually wins her over first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe she could have witnessed him singing with the children and that would have, you know, uh, A, given that more of a point and B, like she could have borne witness to his charm when it wasn't like harassment directed at her. <laughs> Yeah, and he seems to have the impression that like he just needs to wear her down and then it will be fine. And it is, but like there is that background of 
one of the reasons she's likely saying no to him as well is she's already promised to someone else. Like mm-hmm. she's in a relationship. She's, you know, got a power dynamic there where that guy raised her, which is weird enough. And we've already talked about it. But like, <laughs> it's not that she's just like, oh, no, thanks. She's just in the back of her head. She must be like, oh, wait, I have someone else. Right. I would think so. Okay, I would hope so. Well, we've talked a lot about the dynamics here, but uh, mm-hmm. one thing that we've only very, very briefly glanced across is that party scene, which, mm-hmm. boy, you talk about spectacle. I, Apart from the, the giant smoke fountain, a lot of that giant ballet number at the end kind of left me cold because it wasn't, it wasn't doing anything with the story. It wasn't doing anything mm-hmm. with the characters. It just, it's going on and on and on. So th- this, is, this is where... I I, just, I don't I can't see eye to eye with you. <laughs> I just think that's is amazing. The filmmaking is so audacious. It just gives you one bit of spectacle, as you say, after 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 another. The dancing is fantastic. The you know this is I want to live in Technicolor. Uh, it's movies like this that make make me want that. Um, I don't I don't know. I feel like to me this is the reason the movie exists, uh, and uh, it fully justifies that existence with with that sequence. I will give you this about that sequence. Uh, I, I enjoy both the uh, the set dressing, the, the decoration, and the camera work is pretty spectacular uh, for the era. There's there's a lot of like just very mobile camera coming into places where you kind of have to question as a somebody who's seen fifties musicals like how is he doing this? Is this is this all on a crane? Is there are there stitches here that I'm missing? It's really well choreographed in terms of, of camera movement. But I don't know. If I if I wanted to see a ballet, I would go to a ballet. Uh, the point I was making was just the, the party sequence for me has all of the things that, that people praise about that ballet number. I, mm. I guess not as much of the dancing, but... Or the Technicolor. <laughs> oh, that's fair, because uh, everybody's in black and white. Yeah. Well, it is Technicolor, but... I know. <laughs> you, go, you know what I mean. <laughs> the elaborate, uh, just fantastic costumes, the, the uh, giant energy of the place, the ridiculously like huge set and all of the movement around it. The guy who keeps throwing himself off the balcony. <laughs> it's a oh, lady. Yeah. She keeps throwing oh, herself sorry. off the balcony and, and being caught by various people. And I, right, but- I cringed every time. Oh, my God. It seems so unsafe. Yeah. Every time. I think the older I get, the more I'm just like, no, that is not fun. That is not something you do at parties. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's a party I would hate to be at. It seems very <laughs> loud. Nobody can hear anybody else. And they're they're just like, it's a giant COVID Petri dish. They're just packed up <laughs> shoulder, shoulder to shoulder, stomach to back all the way. But in, in terms of watching it, uh, I, I don't know. I find that just that whole sequence so dynamic and kind of the excitement of people finding each other within it and, and then trying to make space for each other and, and space for their own emotions within it, uh, I, I think is just really compelling storytelling. I remember when I was a child thinking that when my parents went to parties, it was like that. And then being <laughs> sorely disappointed when my mom told me all they did was talk. And I was like, what are you talking about? Go to those parties that n- nobody's wearing like a hat that was a giant tea kettle or like a, a huge, just, you know, 10 foot spiral that they weren't putting on their Harlequin costumes before they left. Yeah. And this party has everything. It's just kind of like. I don't know. It's like Santa's bag. Like if you reach in, you can find a quiet corner to have champagne and tell mm. people I, you know, crap about patrons and they can tell you they are a patron. Like anything you need this party to be, it's going to be. Is there a balcony? Great. Can you overhear a conversation on? Even better. <laughs> it's a really great space. Uh, here's my question about that space. 
are they at the Moulin Rouge? <laughs> because at the point where he's up on the balcony in the background, like clearly as part of the building, you can see the windmill. Like you, you can see the, the big fans of the windmill, like up very close. It certainly feels wild and strange and specific and thematic enough to be a Moulin Rouge party. But you know, it's, it's never mentioned. I never even thought about that. That's cool. I didn't either, but uh, a quick Google indicates that you may be correct, Tasha, at least according to IMDb trivia, which is never wrong. So <laughs> the site of a windmill arm before the final ballet indicates the party was held at or near the famed Paris night spot with Rouge. So <laughs> you are, you are not alone in noticing that uh, generally, although in, in this call you are. <laughs> Well, but I'm also not the one who noticed it generally. I got to credit my husband with that one. Would you also like to know uh, how many people on IMDb found that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> it was three out of five. Oh, I was going to say, is it more or less than people on this podcast? <laughs> is it more or less than the number of years Leslie Curran was? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, to return once again at, at the end, as is appropriate to to the Dream Ballet, uh, you know, uh, Keith and Tasha, you seem to be like, you have different opinions on it. And I think as, as is so often the case, I fall, I fall kind of in the middle because I agree with Tasha that like, I wish that there was a little more of the what happens in the movie represented in that ballet. And it was more of sort of a culmination and as it is, it feels just kind of like separate, you know, like it like it just could kind of it does kind of exist on its own. You know, it's more of an homage to Paris, which is cool. Great. But also the film isn't particular doesn't feel particularly enamored or interested in Paris up until this point. I mean, obviously, it's set there, but it's also a, a backlot Paris. And, you know, it's uh, the, the the love story is the the main concern. So I like I, I do love the spectacle. I love watching it. I, I get what you mean, Keith, about wanting to be in it. But I think in terms of how it works within the whole of the movie, it, there is just a feeling of separateness to it that contributes to making that final ending beat where Lisa returns feel even more just kind of tacked on because it feels like, oh, the movie already ended. We already did like this little epilogue that has nothing to do with the, the rest of the movie. Oh, I guess we are back in the movie now. I think for me, one of the issues with that that sequence is that the length of it is driven by the length of the, the piece of music in American in Paris. Oh, also in how much Gene Kelly wanted to show off. <laughs> like it was, it, was, it was very much like his baby, as I understand it. Everything that I read about it made it sound like it was it was much more Freed's uh, idea originally, specifically to take that piece of music and, and use it as the title and the, the end centerpiece. Mm -hmm. Although I could certainly see Kelly having a ton to do with exactly how it ends up being staged. Yeah, and maybe he's more uh, in the execution uh, than the overall conception, but I, I know he has a reputation or had a reputation for being very exacting uh, <laughs> in, about that kind of thing. So, But anyway, you were saying. Regardless, it just, it kind of comes back to my, my overall complaint often with jukebox musicals is there's a feeling that everything is just kind of like clumsily bumping up against each other in such a way as to get us to this piece of music. And then when we do, it's not how much story do we have to tell with this dance number? How much 
emotion do we have to, to bring across or what do we need to express about what this man wants and feels? It's about, well, the piece of music is 17 minutes long and we, we decided we wanted to use it. And it just, it feels so overextended to me. I was very, very much emotionally out of it by the end, even on first viewing. Too much. I'm not enough. Longer to me before. I I really, to me, it's like, oh, it's over. (laughs) I don't know. I was really, I was really into the ballet this time. As always, Keith, I kind of wish that I had your experience of movies rather than my experience of movies. Sometimes, I don't know, Deirdre. uh, Take us out of this. What's what's your big takeaway on the ballet scene? Too long? Not long enough? Whole movie should have been a ballet? Oh God, some of all of those. Um, My whole thing is like, so I really do like dance movies i really do like um musicals and every time i watch this like i don't i mean i guess it depends on what mood i'm on sometimes it feels a little long sometimes it feels you know maybe i want some more but i will say in terms of these long sections of just pure performance inserted at the end of musicals this one at least is a little bit more cohesive in terms of the plot and everything else that's happening like i Mm -hmm. i don't know because i'm such a singing in the rain fan too like i do look at that and that one's just out of nowhere like gene kelly's just like i want to do this big technicolor number and it has next to nothing to do with the plot it doesn't even have the main actress being in it anywhere so for this one i'm like oh we're actually continuing the story good for you like (laughs) yeah i do like it and also does it does remind me of the red shoes every time and i love the red shoes so i'm just kind of like the fact that this is making me like intellectually engaged with films other than this one and i'm like living a fantasy and then reflecting back on this like makes me wonder if i do like it as much as i say or if i just think it makes sense but yeah yeah i don't have a huge issue with it but i also if it weren't here i wouldn't feel wanting well there's certainly worse things in art than reminding you of some of your all-time favorite art and making you appreciate that art more one could even say that's the conceit of this podcast <laughs> I'm certainly not going to end on a more appropriate note than that. So I'm going to call it there. would love to hear your thoughts on this discussion and on anything else in the world of film. Uh, let us know how you feel about jukebox musicals. Has there ever been a great jukebox musical? Not in terms of the music, but in terms of the story. This is something we were talking about a little bit before the podcast. Has there ever been a jukebox musical where the story stands up as well as the music does? Have you ever heard of Singing in the Rain? I have never heard of Singing in the Rain. That would be one. I've heard of Babylon, which is a movie uh, remarkably similar to Singing in the Rain. Well, that's the movie that the movie that Singing in the Rain ripped off. Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, probably the movie that uh, Singing in the Rain was based on. Fair enough, Keith. Like way to undercut all the people about to call us <laughs> and write to us. And- Just taking that one off the table. There's 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 plenty more. Yeah, let it, let us know. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. And we'll be back in a moment with some feedback. feedback. But before we get into it, we should pause to remind everyone to listen to Film Spotting, the next picture show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Campanar and Josh Larson. As we record this, they've recently released an episode on M. Night Shyamalan's Knock of the Cabin for fans of new films and an appreciation of the enduring power of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho for Classics fans. That's two very different thrillers to explore this month. As for our podcast, we've got a few call-ins here uh, discussing our pairing of Children of Men and The Last of Us. Remember how we called out longtime film critic and friend of the show, Mike D'Angelo, for his 80 Club commentary on Children of Men? He has a rebuttal for us. Let's listen. Hey, y'all. Mike D'Angelo here. Uh, you probably guessed that I might call in. Um, 
I, uh, I, I am a faithful listener, as, uh, as somebody mentioned, and uh, always enjoy the show. And when I saw that you were doing Children of Men, I thought, oh, my uh, controversial opinion on that film's uh, lengthy, unbroken takes might come up as a topic of discussion, which indeed it did. Um, I am totally at peace with having a lonely opinion on that. I don't want to have a big debate, but I do. There were a couple of things that got a bit uh, lost in translation, so I just want to clear them up. I'll try to be real quick about it. Uh, one is there was a lot of discussion about blinking. Um, if you go back and read the piece that I wrote for the AV Club a million years ago, uh, I guess listeners can just Google uh, scenic routes and children of men. It'll come right up. Uh, I barely mentioned blinking at all. That was just thrown in as the most obvious example of how human vision is not continuous. Um, that was actually, I was making the same point that Scott made in the episode about children of men, um, which is that it's a camera. <laughs> so, uh, and there's, the camera's not the same as the human eye, and so there's no reason for it to be blinking. That's absolutely correct. I did not mean to suggest that the film is, uh, those shots are taking a human point of view, or that they should. Um, I was basically uh, arguing against the argument that other people have made when they say that cutting cuts are somehow alien to the way that we see the world, and it is more representative to not cut and show things continuously, um, my argument was that that's not true because not so much because of blinking, mostly because of uh, I talked much more in detail about what are called saccades, which is the way the human eyeball uh, jumps from focal point to focal point in ways that I argued are analogous to cuts. Um, but very little to do with blinking. That that was not a big deal. And then the second thing, uh, real quick, is that uh, Tasha made, uh, very eloquently, I thought, the best case, in my opinion, for in favor of shots like that, which is basically that they're more immersive, uh, they're more intense, and the way she put it was um, they don't give you an opportunity to breathe. They don't provide any respite. And basically, my argument has always been good continuity editing accomplishes the same thing. Um, the cut itself does not provide a pause or a breath or a respite. It depends on what the cut is doing. So if you cut somewhere else, then sure. But if you just cut from one moment, one angle of a moment to a different angle of that same moment, and it's very clear that no time has passed and we're in the same place, um, that's not providing a breath. It's To me, it's no less immersive or intense just because there was a cut. Well, I'm glad Mike called in to to clarify that because there are definitely details in that that I had forgotten. Uh, and I honestly really should have gone back and reread that column uh, before we recorded because I, I was pretty sure that I was going to try to bring it up at some point. Um, but we, we kind of, we have talked through our feelings on long takes uh, kind of at length, and we're going to get into it even more in a second with a second letter and a second Colin. Um, but before we do, let's just get a baseline here, uh, Deirdre, for your thoughts. Mike's saying that his issue with them is that they, they just don't represent you know, how, how humans work. And we kind of went back and forth in our own conversation about, are they a good thing or not? Is it immersive or distracting uh, to see a long take? Does it take you out of a movie to think too much about how was this done and, and what were the technical aspects of it? What's your take? What's your feeling on uh, really long takes in, in cinema or TV, really? 
they definitely do take me out of it a little bit, like in Touch of Evil, where you're like, ooh, how'd they do this? They're moving an entire town around. But the film is an art form. It is entirely constructed. And I don't necessarily need to be immersed in it to the level of forgetting that that's the case. I think when it comes down to like, I don't know, I always think about like edits and whatnot. That's part of the language of cinema. All of us are fluent, so it's very hard to see the line between that. But like when you read a book, people don't talk in sentences. Like any of us who've ever had to transcribe an interview knows that. Like people don't talk in sentences. They go all over the place. So I don't really have an issue necessarily with different art forms taking on their own language of communication and then sticking to that. So I guess my point is that like I love that a long take does call attention to it. And it does make me wonder, like, how many extras did you have? But it is a movie, so I don't really have... I don't, I don't think Children of Men is real. Any of the stuff in RRR with, like, all of those extras, I don't for a second think that is real. And whoa, acknowledging... Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, like, acknowledging... Famous documentary, real... Children of Men? <laughs> yeah. For RRR. I know, <laughs> sorry. I'm breaking, I'm breaking truth bombs here. The animals yeah. are real, though, right? The animals... Oh, yeah. Tell me the animals are real. Tar- tigers were super excited to do that. Yeah. But no, like, it, it it isn't real. Like, calling attention to that and then constructing the art form around it, isn't that kind of the point of movies? Like, that's kind of movie magic in itself. I have no issue with that. It's a point of movies. I yes. think that it's... I, I, I'm right there with you. I, I think that it's an artistic choice, and it, it's just as valid an artistic choice as Paul Greengrass's United 93 trying to do a, a shaky cam, you are there, immersive thing. Or, you know, Milos Forman or uh, Stanley Kubrick doing these, like, cold, formal, uh, pinned-down, everything-plotted-and-planned kind of things. Like, these are very, very different ways of doing cinema, but, you know, they're meant to... The filmmaking's meant to be part of the story, and I don't know. I, I'm with you. I think long takes are as valid uh, a, a way of filmmaking as any, regardless of whether they take you out of the film. But we have another letter here from somebody else who called in with a lot of thoughts about our, our Children of Men episode and some thoughts about uh, long form takes in, in general and our thoughts on them in specific. Let's listen to this one from Luke in Rhode Island. Hi, this is Luke from Rhode Island. And I was really struck by something that came up in your discussion of Children of Men, which was the idea that a long take could actually be less immersive than a conventional edited style of filmmaking because you become aware of just how hard it must have been to pull off this continuous long take. And I just think that's a really interesting irony, which points to how incredibly effective the established conventions of cinematography and editing in the continuity style are at creating the illusion of continuous time, space, and story. And it actually made me grateful that our human faculties of perception and our story-seeking brains are so primed to put together disparate elements into something that makes sense, um, that as the conventions of continuity storytelling were invented by filmmakers, uh, it became really possible and really effective with, I don't know, 10 or 20 different rules uh, of editing and, you know, angles to be able to create this illusion that's so immersive that it's actually more immersive than true continuity in filmmaking. So I just think that's really interesting. And it leads me to a kind of discussion challenge for you, which is what's your favorite long take in cinema, Um, either because it doesn't take you out of the story uh, or for some other reason. And I guess a, a second part to that is why do you think there's such a fetish for the long take in cinema fandom? 
So there's there's more to this, uh, Colin. It it was a, a fairly long one. We've cut it down a little bit, but in, in the part that we're giving you here, there are kind of two discussion topics. Why is why are people so taken with long takes in cinema, and uh, what are our favorites? As far as why people are so into them, I think we covered that a, a fair bit on uh, the last set of podcasts. Just in terms of you know, it's it's virtuoso work. It it makes you excited about the filmmaking. It involves you in it or draws you into it or takes you out of it and uh, excites you. Either way, I, I think there are a bunch of reasons there. But I do want to get into the what are your favorites? Like what comes to mind when somebody asks you for your favorite long taken cinema? Well, I'll start with, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call this my favorite long take, but it is certainly the first one that came to mind in the context of this conversation. And that's the opening of Robert Altman's The Player, which I saw for the first time actually in college in a class, not a film class, an English class. I believe it was like a modernism seminar. I can't remember exactly. But, you know, it, we, we watched it as a class as a specifically to talk about the opening and sort of just the meta and self-referential elements of it. So, you know, we're having these discussions about long takes and whether they draw us into a film or take us out of it. So I immediately thought of like the first long take I was like presented with to study. It's, it's, it's a great sequence for like a lot lot of reasons. It's not necessarily like the showiest in terms of like stuff going on, but it's such a good delivery device for that Altman overlapping dialogue because like you're actually moving in and out of the space as that dialogue is like weaving in and out of each other. You get this, it establishes the world of this back lot. It kind of, it's a very impressive establishing shot. There's not necessarily like big events happening in it the way there are, say, in the Children of Men uh, long takes. And it's also a shot that's like very much designed to signal like you are watching a movie. Like it begins with a shot of a painting of a film set, and then there's like a clapper, a director shouting action, and it turns into the shot. And it's very much like like yelling, This is a construct. You know, you are watching a movie. Uh, there's references in there to Touch of Evil, and absolutely, like it actually references other movies with long takes in it. And then there's just like a lot of funny stuff worked into like him being pitched a sequel to The Graduate. So there's, it's just a, it's a long take about filmmaking. And so the idea that you are thinking about how it works is built into how it works. So I thought it was an appropriate one for this particular thought exercise. That's a really good one. It's one of the ones I thought of. And, and the, you know, the first ones I thought of are the really obvious ones. One, you know, Goodfellas, beginning of Touch of Evil, and, and, and the beginning of uh, Boogie Nights, which is, is amazing. So I think, I think too quickly from opposite ends of, of what they're doing, there's the uh, Sokhara film Russian Arc, uh, which is which is amazing, which is one. It is The whole film is one take and no no joke it is there's no faking it it's just it's one edit it's, it's not 1917 it <laughs> uh, right right exactly through 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 you know trip through the winter palace in st petersburg and 300 years of, of of russian history uh as hosted by a ghost you know it's a ghost story too uh but also uh, what I, I love is it's where there's no move and that thing moves all through everywhere and looks around and you know but but the, the another one i love is the end of, is the end of uh, big night uh which is just you know, mm. it just holds on that moment, and any editing there, I think, would just be would just break the spell of that 
there. So sometimes it's about moving the camera, sometimes it's just about keeping the camera in one place. And uh, and just in general, I'm, I'm a fan of long shots. Good long shots are good. That's that's my that's my opinion. Tasha, how about you? Well, I think I may have touched on this one in the um, in the discussion last time, but immediately the first thing that came to my mind was the sequence from Atonement, where James McAvoy is walking along the beach at Dunkirk. Uh, the British soldiers are, are piled up and waiting for transport. They've been pushed to the sea, and he just he spends five minutes walking through this chaos of like broken down machinery and guns still being like a giant gun still being fired upwards and there's a a bandstand where people are standing and singing in a a kind of a carnival in the distance with like a working ferris wheel still going and it's chaos you know it's it's the chaos of thousands of men who have nowhere to go and nothing to do and are either occupying themselves there's just one sequence where he walks by somebody who's doing a workout regimen on a pommel horse or they're at work with the various things that they're meant to be doing as, as part of the army, or they're just standing around or they're trying to keep their spirits up. You know, there's, there's smoke and uh, damage everywhere. It's just a lot. And it's a capturing of a scene and all of these different kind of complications of a scene that's, that's going on where many, many different people are making many different choices it's not an action sequence. Like nothing comes of it in the way that the children of men action sequences all lead to usually people dying and, and things changing in dramatic ways. Like nothing huge is decided or changes during the scene. He's just finding his way through chaos. And that I think for me is just a a particularly poignant sequence because it's just about, exploring an environment, exploring an environment that is continuous in the way that, that reality is. You know, if you're, if you're walking down the beach and seeing many different things, there are no cuts, there are no story elements. You just, everything around you is, is there and is all just kind of part of the same world. Even if, you know, at, at one place you're watching people scream and try to like haul somebody drowning out of the surf and, 50 feet up the beach is, you know, uh, somebody flexing for an audience of people shooting him for Instagram, you know, just very different experiences within the same space. I, I think that's a really cool use of the single take. There's also uh, 2015's Victoria, the two hour, 20 minute single shot movie, which Luke actually did call out in the the rest of this call and, and talked about how cool that movie is, how immersive it is, how surprising it is technologically technologically. And uh, we we had to cut it down for length. Uh, but I was really, really glad he, he said he came to it because of this podcast. I think it was one of our Your Next Picture Show recommendations ages ago. But I was just so happy for the shout out. I'm so happy whenever anybody listens to one of my obscure recommendations and, and digs it. And I will always stand up for Sebastian Shipper's Victoria and just the completely amazing technological uh, achievement that it is and, and the weird immersive experience that it is. Deirdre, what about you? So without hesitation, I think my favorite giant long take is um, from Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, where it's just like, you're following this starts out kind of a traffic jam and it doesn't even crescendo. It just keeps getting weirder and then goes back to normality. And there's dead people and there's a plane crash and things are on fire and there's fire trucks and uh, for a couple times the 
couple in a car that we're tracking along with, they kind of get behind, they might get in for ahead. It's just, it's not even utter chaos. It's very confined chaos. It's just, you don't quite know what's going to happen next. And Godard is like, or was notorious for just taking the language of cinema and exploiting it and being like, I'm going to make it so you don't know where to look. Like I'm going to make it so you're hyper-focused on something and it's not what you should be looking at. Like he's going to either have a take that's 10 minute long, or he's going to have jump cuts that make it seem like everything's on fast forward when it's actually in real time. And I really appreciate that about him, but just watching this, it's like, how did he do this? How did he do this? This weird little grumpy French man in the sixties <laughs> who did couldn't have had that big of a budget. It just has utter control over this environment and mayhem and death and everything. And he's just kind of taking us through it. And your eye gets to decide where to look. And each time I watch it, I see something new and I've seen it dozens of times. Like it's just, it's incredible for me. And it's just such an immersive experience. And it's, it's a hard film to recommend to anyone, but it's just for me, I'm just like, I'm going to be watching it. You can join me if you'd like. Yeah, that's great. And that's one where I think it does something that really great long shots do is like, you know, you just kind of like, you just kind of get caught up in it. It's like, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? How long, is this, how long has this been going on? I really do like a long take where it's like, I like a minute or so in before you realize there hasn't been a cut. And and, and that, it has that kind of desired effect of really just kind of uh, putting you under the spell of, of what that filmmaker is doing. And that's, that's certainly an example of that. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and also their prompts and questions. If you feel so inclined, we could feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at a much more modern style of dance and a much more modern style of letting a woman pay for dinner in Magic Mike's Last Dance. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, I really do actually want to hear Adam's story about his command performance for Hitler. That sounded really interesting. (laughs) 